0: Inauguración del Campeonato de la Liga Internacional. Cuba, representada en esta organización por el equipo de los Sugar Kings, se halla en la antesala de las grandes ligas. Los embajadores de Estados Unidos y Canadá presiden la ceremonia de apertura de la serie entre los cubanos y el Bófalo. Tras el saludo de los managers, en el clásico gesto de Sportmanship se inicia el juego. Un formidable batazo de cuatro esquinas del cubano
1: Asdrubal Barro, con dos embates da ventaja decisiva a los Sugar Kings, obteniendo Cuba su primera victoria del campeonato Triple A. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hola, mis amigos, Bienvenidos. bienvenidos. Good seats still available. Yes, it's our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Do not adjust your listening devices. My name is Tim Hanlon. And no, I have not uh, learned another language. Uh, That uh, obviously uh, is uh, my poor attempt at uh, speaking Spanish. And I thought perhaps it would be a little bit of a a cute little uh, entree into our conversation this week. Uh, as we dial back the Wayback Machine to you know, circa late 1950s and pre Castro Revolution, uh, Cuba and uh, its relationship with baseball. And uh, it's a fascinating tale. And that little clip that you heard uh, was from a Cuban newsreel, if you can believe it, from the 1959 season uh, of a team in the Triple uh, A International League called the Havana Sugar Kings. And uh, that year, 1959. Uh, it was a very pivotal one for the history of baseball and Cuba as the uh, Havana Sugar Kings uh, won the uh, not only the International League, but also the Junior World Series. That is the Triple A World Series uh, championship. And um, it is a fascinating tale and a very uh, interesting point in time as uh, the revolution uh, was bearing down and, and taking hold uh, in a country that had been uh, through quite a bit of uh, a change in and upheaval uh and that was literally sort of the last uh you could call it bastion of professional baseball goodness i guess you could say as the uh the revolution uh, took hold and 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 moved the, the the uh the country of cuba into uh the communist way of life under fidel castro you have to remember at this time in the late 50s uh, in particular 1959 Baseball not only was uh, a supreme the uh, the Cuban League uh, obviously of decades old ba- dating back to the earliest days of professional baseball well ingrained into Cuban culture uh, very much a winter league kind of proposition but uh, hugely followed uh, and very passionately so uh, by uh, folks in in Cuba and and rife with many 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 major league prospects over time but also the uh, migration of that uh, internal often Team Cuban uh, league into uh, what became a very competitive and ultimately championship team in uh, American minor league circles. And the idea was uh, in the late 50s that uh, that, the Havana in particular uh, might someday get an actual major league baseball franchise. And that's why uh, this conversation this week is very interesting Uh, with our guest, Cesar Brioso. He is the author of a very uh, fascinating book about this time called Last Seasons in Havana, the Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. And we get into all kinds of stuff around uh, uh, the Cuban League, uh, the Havana Sugar Kings in the uh, uh, the AAA uh, International League, uh, 1959 in particular for both of those leagues. And and sort of what uh, occurred, it was very much looked upon as almost like a national championship uh, once the uh, Sugar Kings won that uh uh, that title in 59. But but make no mistake, 1959 uh, specifically was a very interesting year and convoluted in terms of uh, sort of how the seasons uh, of both of those uh, teams and leagues played out. And you're talking about uh, uh, you know uh, a team that, uh, uh, in particular, the 59 Havana Sugar Kings brought a number of major players into the major leagues. Uh, ultimately, Luis Arroyo Uh, Two-time All-Star with the 1961 uh, World Series New York Yankees, a pitcher. Uh, Leo Cardenas, Cardenas, he says, five-time All-Star, Gold Glove and uh, 1965 uh, Cincinnati Reds uh, standout. Uh, Mike Cuellar, uh, four-time All-Star himself on the 1970 World Series Baltimore Orioles, Cy Young winner in 1969. This is a team uh, really emblematic of of some of the great players, but you go back years prior. Uh, People like Tommy Lasorda and just a whole bunch of players that played in the actual Cuban League uh, prior to the uh, Sugar Kings in their uh, championship uh, in the International League in 59. We're going to get into all of that and the fascinating backstory uh, and implications of that with, again, our guest Cesar Brioso uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, It is a fascinating conversation, a fascinating tale. Uh, I learned a lot about Cuban history and as well as baseball history, and I think you will, too. Uh, before we get there, though, I do want to thank uh, one of our great sponsors this week, and that's our friends uh, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. dot com, and in particular Dean Mitchell, the uh, proprietor of said uh, website of goodness. And uh, at sportshistorycollectibles.com, dot com, you're going to find a, uh, a a trove of of well curated and awesome uh, memorabilia from all kinds of teams and, and leagues from sports of your, not sports of your, but the teams, the leagues themselves, no longer with us. And uh, I think you're going to find a fascinating uh, curation there. Far nicer, far more well-lit than uh, the things you may find uh, in the sketchier worlds of places like eBay, etc. And uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS, uh, you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases there at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And there's all kinds of great stuff from various teams and leagues in uh, baseball and football and soccer uh, and basketball and hockey, uh, even things like golf and Olympics, and it's all there. It's an amazing array of stuff. Uh, Dean Mitchell and his colleagues are are constantly adding new inventory there. Uh, fair pricing for sure, and uh, you're uh, you're going to be satisfied with the quality. Uh, by all means, check them out. It's SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, and make sure you use that promo code seats for fifteen percent off all of your purchases. And uh, we appreciate you giving them a try. And that's from us at Good Seeds, still available, of course. And uh, and that's our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. All right, let's uh, segue, uh, shall we, into our fascinating uh, and very interesting conversation about uh, the history of Cuban baseball in the 1950s and sort of what happened to it during the course of, of all of the revolutionary times under the Castro regime with our guest, Cesar Brioso. And uh, here's our chat. Please Enjoy. Why don't you tell our uh, our uh, our mighty and growing audience, uh, believe it or not, uh, what your uh, background is and why the investigation of this story uh, for you to kind of commit time and energy to uh, uh, to write a what I think is a really interesting and fa- fascinating story in, in book form?
0: You know, the, the why as to uh, my putting in the time for this really kind of goes back to uh, my dad. Um, he you know, he. He's from Cuba, and as, you know, as I was born in Cuba as well, uh, when um, you know he was a kid growing up in the 40s, he uh, was a fan of as one of the four teams in the Cuban uh, Winter League. And uh, when I was a kid, he would tell me all these stories about American players who would come there in the winter, uh, guys like Tom Lasorda and uh, Monty Irvin, uh, Max Lanier, uh, Ray Dandridge, um, and even uh, a guy who, at the time, um uh was uh was uh, not known by he was known by his real name but he became famous as Chuck Connors. Um the, the uh the actor. Uh he used to be a Dodgers farmhand. So anyway he'd tell me all these stories and you know, as a kid I was more interested in the games that were going on at the time, but as I uh grew older and got to appreciate the history of baseball, um I started to get more interested uh, in, in baseball in Cuba. And uh, when I became a sports writer in Florida, you know, a lot of these guys were retired in Florida, and I was able to hunt some of them down and do articles on them. And it just, you know, as I was doing this, I I knew that eventually I wanted to write, um, you know, a book about this topic. And the first one was Havana Hardball, which dealt with uh, baseball in Cuba in the 1940s, around the time that Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers uh, held spring training there, right before he broke baseball's color barrier. So that was the first book. And then this book last season's in Havana just was sort of picks up where that uh, that first book left off uh, talking about baseball in Cuba in the 50s and what happened uh, with professional baseball there uh, because of the Castro revolution.
1: But you're also a sports writer by trade, right? Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm not a, a beat writer anymore. I'm now a digital producer at USA Today. But yes, I've been a sports writer. I've been a copy editor. Uh, now on the website side of things. But yes, I, my 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 training, my background uh, for years was as a as a writer.
1: Got it. Well, a lot of uh, you know a lot of this uh, of this book, as we'll get into uh, uh, some of the specifics uh, in a few minutes, uh, centers around uh, kind of the last few years of the uh, of the Cuban League, uh, as well as one of its uh, more famous. Uh, and uh, uh, quite notable teams. But maybe before we get into even that, maybe you could sort of uh, give sort of a layman's uh, sort of understanding about what this Cuban League uh, was all about prior to that time. Because uh, I think it's lost on a, on a whole generation or maybe even two uh, of American sports fans and baseball enthusiasts about uh, uh, the sort of uh, rich history and and, and the, uh, the historical underpinnings of the Cuban League, which almost dates uh, as far back as uh, – uh, organized professional league baseball in the United States uh, in terms of uh, how old and uh, entrenched uh, it was and is.
0: Uh, that's right. The The Cuban League was formed in uh, 1878, uh, but baseball in Cuba dates back to the 1860s. Uh, well-to-do Cuban families would send their kids to study uh, here in the U.S., and some of them brought the game back with them uh, to Cuba in the 1860s. Um, and, and eventually, uh, a league was formed. At that time, it was only three teams: Almendares, um, Alana, and Marianao. And they played something like a 10 or 12 game season. Uh, but then, sort of year by year, every winter it, it kind of grew and expanded. Uh, they would they might have four teams or five teams, and some of the some of the teams would change year to year. Uh, except for Almendares and Havana, they were the eternal rivals, uh, and they were there uh, for the for the whole time. And finally, things stabilized. The four teams that uh, we saw in the 40s and 50s uh, again: Almendares, Havana, Cienfuegos, and Marianao. but throughout the first half of the 20th century, uh, you know, teams from the from America would go there, and and also individual players. So league teams started barnstorming there around 1900, uh, in the 19 teens. Uh, also some uh, major league teams came there to, to barnstorm the uh, uh, the Tigers, the the A's, um, uh the Giants uh held spring training there in in nineteen thirty seven. Uh, and then of course individual players would uh playing uh, in the Cuban League with the various teams uh, throughout the first half of the twentieth century. So the, the the baseball ties between Cuba and the US uh, run deep. Uh but as you said, there there's sort of this this gap after the revolution, uh you know, so you know, some 50 to 70 years where the there wasn't that sort of free exchange of players back and forth. Um, and also, you know, Cuban players would came to uh, came to play in the majors. The the, the earliest ones uh, in terms of the modern era were two with the Cincinnati Reds, uh, Rafael Almeida and uh, Armando Marsand in 1911. And then others uh, would come, uh, you know, Adolfo Luque pitched for 20 seasons uh, in the majors with various teams, the Reds, Giants, Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, Miguel Ángel Gonzalez uh, was a catcher uh, uh, often with the the Cardinals but also uh, the Giants he ended up being a Cardinals third base coach for many years, was in the third base box for Enos Slaughter's mad dash home in the '46 World Series. So these ties were there for many years, but all that got cut off after the revolution. Uh, And it's really not been until maybe the last 15 years or so that we started to see the defections that we've seen and and started to see some of the talent that uh, the U.S. has been missing out on um, since uh, 1960.
1: But well, before we get into that sort of uh, that uh, tumultuous and and, and uh, period uh, of the '50s and and sort of what it led to and and uh, the things that have come, I guess, out of that since, uh, what, may, can you characterize what the relationship was between Major League Baseball and either this Cuban League or just Cuba uh, and the the sport of baseball generally? Right, you're mentioning you know some spring training exploits and some barnstorming and but, but what was the what was the relationship was it official semi-official you know was it a training ground was it a uh, a scouting uh environment how was it sort of developing or was it kind of informal and and uh, and relatively un uh, unrefined
0: i mean it was definitely informal in the, for the the first uh you know four decades of uh, the 20th century uh you know a lot of times you know like managers and, and owners in cuba uh used maybe their... um Connections uh, from having played in the Negro leagues and in the Major League Baseball to sort of recruit players uh, from organized baseball to come uh, spend time in the, there in the winter, but uh, the Cuban League wasn't affiliated with organized baseball late in the 1940s, uh, so it was uh, just uh, you know kind of an informal relationship, word of mouth. There, the, the ties that those that the players and, and, and managers and owners in Cuba had developed with players in, in, uh, in America. Uh, but then uh, in the mid-1940s, the Mexican League started raiding uh, major league players. Uh, they ended up getting about a couple dozen to jump their contracts and come play in Mexico for the summer. Uh, and it, some, most of the names weren't huge names, uh, but... Made a play for some of the some of the all stars. They tried to tried to get the, uh, you know Ted Williams and, and Stan Musial to jump their contracts, and that was enough uh, for Commissioner Chandler, Happy Chandler, to to say, all right, the, you know, to, to take action, and he he pronounced that uh, anybody who jumped their contracts for Mexico. Uh, would be banned from playing in, in organized baseball for at least five years, but he also and where Cuba comes into this, he also declared that anyone who participated uh, in games with or against these uh, these banned jumpers, they also would be ineligible to play. So that's how the Cuban League got sort of uh, you know scooped up into this uh, collateral damage, if you will. Uh, many of the Cuban players, uh, you know, if they if they weren't playing in organized baseball in the U.S. in the summer. Uh, Because Cuba was a winter league, they might play in Mexico uh, in the summer with a lot of these guys, and certainly those guys were in the winter. So this sort of guilt by association uh, made the Cuban League an outlaw circuit um, in 1946. Um, In fact, the the 1946-47 Cuban League season, there was an organized baseball-sanctioned alternative league playing in another stadium. Uh, in Havana that um, you know for for guys who didn 't want to risk their eligibility in organized baseball where they where they could play, you know it was short lived it didn 't have the, the it wasn 't as popular as the traditional Cuban league it was only that one season uh, but then after that winter, uh, representatives from the Cuban League uh, negotiated with the happy Chandler and organized baseball and then they they came up with a pact that um, sort of uh, codified just how um, the Cuban League could sign players uh, uh, from organized baseball. Um, you know, the, the teams would, would get could get as much as many as eight per team uh, from organized baseball. There would be a pool of players depending on their ex- experience, level, eligible to sign. And that's when the Cuban League was brought into organized baseball as an unaffiliated minor league, and it became official.
1: Am I correct in in, in understanding that the uh, that the Negro leagues were a little bit more, shall we say, aggressive or freer flowing? Uh, With players and talent uh, in maybe not the Cuban League itself, but some of the uh, uh, the minor league infrastructure underneath the Cuban League uh, in Cuba, Uh, including, by the way, not uh, uh, unimportantly, uh, integration and an embrace of 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 players that ironically were not uh, were actually being segregated right in the United States.
0: Yeah, I mean there there wasn't necessarily a minor league system for for the Cuban League, but uh the the Cuban League itself was integrated since uh, 1900. Uh so so you know, ne- uh Negro League players would would come there starting like I said in 1900. Uh they were treated well. Um you know, uh it really was a meritocracy in terms of uh who played. Uh they wanted the you know, the Cuban League uh, those owners uh, wanted uh, the best players. Um uh, there were uh you know, uh, you know, uh, Martin Diego, who was a, a Negro League star, Cuban star, he's in the hall, of, hall three Halls of Fame, different countries. Um, not only was he a great player, he also managed uh, in the Cuban League. Uh, so there wasn't uh, the, the sort of color barrier that existed here uh, in, in the United States in organized baseball. Uh, so Negro League players were able to go to Cuba and uh, in some cases uh, felt like they were being treated better there than in their home country.
1: Now that's interesting. You also probably figure that uh, it gave uh, a lot of players—I uh, will call it extended life, so to speak—but uh, in essence, you know, it's year-round play, right? Which I'm sure is ultimately the the attraction for some of the uh, the major league uh, players that ultimately wound up playing too. Because in essence, you've got a winter league that uh, is—you know—if you're a manager or you're an on- your ownership and you want uh, your players to improve and uh, improve in the skills or maybe even rehab from injuries and that kind of stuff. I mean, this. It's a very convenient uh, opportunity, right? For for uh, arguably some top tier play uh, in the quote unquote off season to literally continue to play year round.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Cuban League, I've heard it described as being sort of the, the sort of a uh, level of play being somewhere between AAA and the majors um and you know for we were talking about an era where guys weren't making a whole lot of money so in the off season if they weren't a star like you know Joe DiMaggio or, or Ted Williams who had these huge contracts uh, for the time you know they had to go get a real job uh, in the in the off season uh, working at the their local hardware store or wherever or uh they could play uh, winter ball in in Cuba, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, uh, you name it. So the all those opportunities were there. Uh you know, and in the Cuban League, you know, they played uh, they might have played three or four games um a week. Uh so the rest of the time was kind of their own. Uh, it was sort of a, you know, I guess a working vacation. A lot of guys would bring uh their wives and and kids down there with them in the winter. Um, and, and make uh, make a vacation out of it, as well as get stay in shape, get some playing time, make some extra money. Um, so it was really a, it benefited all parties, really.
1: Well, so what changed in the uh, in the '40s, right? Because uh, obviously, I guess a good two way relationship in many respects, albeit uh, somewhat informal. But circa '46, right? There is, uh, I guess, the first real you know, approach, right, to have a, a professional team uh, with uh, ties. Uh, more directly to what people would call organized baseball in the United States. You want to sort of give us a little bit of background about uh, this team, which I think is kind of scene set for quite a bit more of what we talk about going forward here.
0: Sure, yeah. Uh, that's You're talking about the uh, the Class B Havana Cubans. Uh, uh, they were the, the first uh, minor league team to play down there in the uh, Florida International League. They were uh, Joe Cambria, uh, scout for the... Uh, uh for the uh Washington Senators, a guy who signed uh, you know, somewhere between three hundred and four hundred Cuban players, uh, you know, over several decades. Um, he was involved uh with that team. Um there there was quite a rivalry between um the Havana Cubans and the Tampa Smokers. Uh they were both in the same league. They they vied for uh, league Championship several times. Um, and then at uh, one point, um, Bobby Maduro, the guy who built uh, El Gran Stadium in Havana, the, the same stadium that exists today, Estadio Latino Americano, that's where the Rays uh, played the Cuban National League, uh, the Cuban National Team uh, a few years ago with, with uh, President Obama in attendance. That stadium still exists. Well, he built that stadium for um, the, the Cuban League. Uh, he ended up buying the the Havana Cubans, and moving them to AAA, uh, to the International League, as the Havana Sugar Kings. Uh, that was in 1954, uh, 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 um, their their first season as a, as a AAA franchise. And Maluto built the stadium and bought the team with the idea of eventually bringing uh, a major league expansion team to Havana. The the Sugar Kings motto was uh, un paso más y llegamos. And it's, that's Spanish for one more step and we get there. Uh not just an allusion to the uh, AAA players being a step one step from the majors but also uh the possibility of Havana being uh, one step uh, from having a major league team. That was his goal when he built the stadium and bought the uh, the uh, the single the uh, the Class B team uh, in the Florida International League.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting. I want to unpack a few things there before we sort of get into uh, Maduro a little bit more and 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 sort of the 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 steps towards perhaps that sort of ultimate uh, uh last uh, move into the major leagues. But the, the, these Cubans, uh, the Havana Cubans. Um so this Joe Cambria guy, right? So he's he was what a scout for the the Senators and and was there was it was there an official I guess it was an official affiliation, right? Because they were part of uh, a domiciled uh, minor league in the United States, right?
0: Yeah, uh, Papa Joe, as he was called in, in Cuba, he was uh, uh, he lived there. Uh, he he scouted and signed, uh, like I said, hundreds of players, uh, often on the cheap, uh, and you know a, a lot of guys, most many guys you never heard of, but quite a few, but a few of them did make it with uh, the Washington Senators. At least played a few years uh, in the uh, '40s and '50s. Um, and, uh, you know, he was sort of, uh, in, involved with the team. He wasn't like the, the main owner, but he had a, he had a, uh, a percentage of the, of the ownership. Um, and it was, uh, owned and, and run by, uh, by, by a Cuban, uh, uh, Cuban men down there uh, that and then uh, eventually Maduro uh, another Cuban entrepreneur uh bought the team but yeah they were they were part of the uh like I said the Class uh, B and also uh, Class C uh Florida International League um affiliated uh with the Washington Senators um before uh, before they moved to Triple A yeah
1: so that's interesting too because we've done a couple of uh, episodes already on the uh <laughs> How can I best put it? The relatively woeful performance of the uh, the original Washington Senators, and frankly, the the second Washington Senators as well, for that matter. Uh, yeah. But so I, it's interesting because number one, I think it's a, it's a almost a, a master stroke by uh, by Cambria to kind of recognize that you know there's sort of this um, you know not officially uh, untapped uh, uh, sort of source of of talent, and by you know, establishing a relationship and getting a team in the Florida League. And, you know, this could be a, a tremendous pipeline, if you think about it, of, of great talent. But then at the same the same stroke, and again, this is solely from our investigations thus far about the Senators' franchise and their history, uh, it doesn't seem to translate uh, very well into any competitive advantage on the field, mostly, right?
0: No, they didn't have a, a lot of great seasons, uh, uh, unfortunately. Uh, you know, like I said, the they, Cambria kind of dealt in volume, uh, you know, really maybe not as much in, in, in quality. Um, he just wanted to get as many guys signed as possible. Although, like I said, there they they were good players, but uh, by the time the ones that made the biggest impact, 1950s, um, you know, th- at that point... Uh, you're talking about now the Sugar Kings and they ended up eventually uh not being when, when they moved to Triple A they ended up being uh, affiliated with the Reds uh and and they didn't have the the tie with uh, with the Senators so that may have been a factor as well that, that some of the talent was uh, was going elsewhere
1: All right well so let's get to the early 50s and, and and maybe we can now get a little deeper into the story of uh Roberto Bobby Maduro so uh who who is he uh and how does he sort of uh become a player in all of this and, and how does he get involved with, uh, with uh, the Havana Cubans and, and, and the story, you know, from taking it from, from what it, what it was under uh, original formation uh, to the Cambria's uh, tutelage to, to what it ultimately sort of became.
0: Uh, well, well, he was, uh, the, you know, he came from wealth uh, in, in Cuba, uh, studied in the United States as well, played uh, baseball when he was younger for, uh uh, one of the the veredero, one of the uh, like a you know sports club, uh, tennis club kind of kind of place, um, and and obviously he he just he loved baseball, uh, and with the the money that he had, um, he and a partner uh, built uh, El, El Gran Stadium in 1946. Um, before that, the Cuban League played in a stadium called La Tropical, which was uh, a little further on the outskirts of town. Um, it was not just a baseball-only facility. It had been built for the Pan American Games in the 30s, and uh, you know, it, it uh, the facility uh, accommodated not just uh, baseball, but there was uh, uh, enough room for a soccer field, uh, an Olympic-sized track. Uh, La Tropical was a brewery, so there were beer gardens. The brewery was part of this facility. Um, this sort of bucolic setting, uh, but again, um, it had sort of out, outlived its usefulness in terms of baseball. Uh, it only sat uh, only seated like twenty thousand and Maluto built uh, El gran stadium much closer to the heart of the the city uh, thirty five thirty four thirty five thousand seat stadium uh, baseball only um, in nineteen forty six and the Cuban League moved there. He eventually bought the Cienfuegos Club um, uh, of the Cuban League um and then again and from there jumped to to uh, buying the Havana Cubans and, and moving them to triple uh, he, a he originally had thought about uh, uh keeping them uh potentially in in uh, the lower classification and trying to maybe add another team in Havana to sort of boost um attendance competition but then he decided to go for broken and, and move it into triple a
1: and how does that occur because uh, is it him lobbying Organized baseball and, and and the AAA officials or, you know, is it also a mutual, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't want to call it a money grab, but uh, expansionary uh, mindset perhaps of the league itself uh, to look at new territories such as uh, an untilled uh, uh, pot of soil in Havana in Cuba?
0: Well, I think it's several factors. They they knew him as as an owner of Cienfuegos. They've had, you know, contacts uh, with him with having their players play in the Cuban League in the winter. You know, he wanted to move it to uh closer to the to major league baseball. Uh so yes, he was he was lobbying uh, organized baseball, the the International League. Uh several things happened. Uh, I believe the it was the Springfield um franchise that folded and then um Uh, St. Louis uh, moved to Baltimore. So there were several things, uh, the the St. Louis Brown moved to Baltimore. So there were several things going on in organized baseball. And I believe it was the, you know, technically the, the Springfield franchise that they took over. you know the the position that that position uh in the international league by moving the uh the cubans uh to the international league as the sugar kings uh but yeah he he lobbied the uh, uh the the league uh, you know there he had to pay uh, a certain amount of money to the florida international league for you know leaving there uh to to all, to, the, to the remaining teams uh but uh, they were he was eventually accepted um uh into the International League.
1: So this wasn't this wasn't literally the Cubans becoming the Sugar Kings. It was kind of a more indirect path by uh, getting the rights for the Springfield Massachusetts franchise in the in the International League and kind of converting it to that and and essentially replacing the Cubans with this new Sugar Kings franchise and 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 moving them up so to speak into the Triple A.
0: Yeah, like the, the there had been a spot in Springfield. So yeah. he bought the 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 uh the uh, the, the, uh Cuban the Cubans team uh and and then that that structure that organization is what took over uh what had been the Springfield franchise uh in the international league
1: yeah and i guess in hindsight right which is obviously the only thing that i have here because i'm i'm going back into time as sort of a, an historical uh, exercise right uh, i got to think that he's uh and i get a sense uh, from from some of the stuff that you you've written is that he was not unaware right of all these other sort of things that were going on during the fifties, right. You're mentioning the St. Louis Browns moving to Baltimore, but you know, this is also the beginning of, of a, you know, the be- of a, a large set of, of franchise movements uh, with some velocity right the, the Braves of Boston, then going to Milwaukee and, you know, the Dodgers and the Giants, you know, leaving New York uh, all in one fell swoop, going to the, to the West coast. Uh, you know, I, it seems to me that that uh, probably was either an impetus for, Uh, What he was starting to put together or corroboration of what he had already envisioned already about sort of baseball sort of getting out of its uh, Midwest and uh, Northeast United States roots
0: yeah there was a there was a lot of movement and and the the talk of expansion had already begun and and people in organized baseball uh team owners were were talking about the possibility of expanding into uh you know cities like Havana and montreal toronto that that they were they were discussing uh uh you know expanding into not just uh, west in the united states states but uh uh you know, various other places. And I believe Branch Ricky even suggested that there might need to be a third major league and that uh, there would be a lot of uh, Latin cities uh, as part of that. So, uh, that so yeah, there was, there was uh, all of this, the, the movement and discussion of expansion was all going on at that time. It was just a question of when and where. All
1: right, well, uh, let's, uh, I want to get to the Cuban League uh, itself as well, but maybe you can give us a little bit of sense of of uh, the Sugar Kings and and how uh, prominent and or successful they became. Uh, You know, they obviously uh, changed their affiliation. You mentioned it before uh, to the Cincinnati Reds from uh, from their original. Well, actually, no, the the predecessor uh, team, of course, uh, with their uh, Washington uh, senators affiliation. But um, give us a sense of sort of how popular the Sugar Kings were. And and as part of that. You know, you mentioned the stadium that he uh, helped construct was was that a decent size stadium? Was that appropriate for the amount of uh, fan enthusiasm or or was it largely cavernous and and under uh, uh, under attended? I'm just curious as to how much uh, success was uh, happening at the gate uh, for all of these teams in that stadium.
0: Well it, it really just sorta of depends. I mean remember this the, the, the stadium not only ha it, it housed the, the the Cuban League uh but and also the Sugar Kings. Uh so it was being used year round. Um and the the Cuban League, even though the, the four the four teams that you know technically represented uh not just Havana, you had Cienfuegos and mariana outside the city, uh, but they all the four teams played in the city in that one stadium um and and whenever uh particularly Havana and Almondada the eternal rivals played uh the stadium was packed they were the the two best teams uh you know they were the the Yankees and Dodgers if you will uh of of that league and so there was a, a great deal of enthusiasm uh, uh usually a packed house uh, in my first book i 40 one of the reasons why i picked the the 46 47 season is uh as Jackie robinson is arriving for spring training in 47 the cuban league is wrapping up uh with almendares and Havana locked in this uh, uh amazing pennant uh, battle and they the two the two teams have to play uh this uh three game series to determine determine the championship. Pavana, uh, Amandadis had to win all three games and did so uh, with uh, Max Lanier, former All-Star with the St. Louis Cardinals, one of the guys who jumped to the Mexican League, uh, pitching the first and third game on one day's rest winning both and giving Almendares the, the, the championship. They had come back from like uh you know, they had to win like thirteen of the last fourteen games, uh, or uh, if they lose if they lost more than that, uh, Alana would have would have won the title. Uh so you know, you know, games like the, between those two teams were always packed. Uh, with the Sugar Kings, it sort of depended. Uh, you know, the, uh, they had uh, they had much better attendance than uh, other international league teams. Um, you know, uh, in many many of those seasons, um, but you know, as, as stuff started to happen in Cuba with uh, uh, with Castro's revolution, although that was really in the in the sort of countryside in the eastern provinces away from Havana, um, you know. You started to see some attendance uh, drop off, but again, a lot of times better than than the other teams uh, in the league. One of the issues that they had, Maludo had agreed to help uh, pay for some of the travel for uh, for the other teams in the league, so that uh, you know caused him uh, some financial strain, um, you know, in terms of uh, his bottom line. Um, yeah, I was gonna. I'm but, sorry, I was gonna
1: say that. It, that's. Uh, I was wondering how prohibitive. Uh, that travel could have been especially at the at the AAA level right where major league arguably you know uh, and even then right the 40s and the late well, 40s the early 50s you know air travel was kind of novel still and and a lot of it was train and stuff but you know i can't imagine that was an inexpensive uh, yeah, road I, trip. I'm right? sure it
0: wasn't, especially if you're coming from uh, Toronto. That was one of the teams in the you league. Know, Rochester.
1: Then. I mean, you got you got a lot yeah. of you know. B- 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 we think uh, changing planes today is a hassle. I mean, it probably was even worse then.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so you know that that was a, and eventually he got some relief in terms of uh, you know helping uh, sort of uh, uh, augment the travel co- cost for the other teams. Uh, but that was certainly an issue. Uh, you know they they, they did not uh, you know win the international league. Uh, until 1959. Uh, that was, you know, it, they were one of the four teams in the playoffs. They ended up winning the International League and then playing uh, the champion uh, of the American Association, the Minneapolis Millers, in a very exciting uh, uh, seven game series. They started in, in Minneapolis the first two games. The conditions were so bad uh, in terms of cold, snow, rain. Uh, they were only getting several hundred in attendance. That they moved the the rest of the season to Havana, and those games did great. This is post-revolution uh, Castro in attendance, a packed house, um, you know, and, and and the Sugar Kings uh, win uh, in dramatic fashion in Game Seven. Uh, so uh, that was sort of the last hurrah of uh, of the Sugar Kings in Havana. Uh, the next season, uh, with everything going on af- post-revolution, uh, the deteriorating relations between the U.S. and Cuba, the International League uh, uh, decided uh, mid-season. In fact, they were actually on a road trip to uh, relocate the franchise to Jersey City uh, at the end of their at the end of their road trip. Uh, and you know they didn't even have the, the chance really to have new uniforms made. So they show up in Jersey City for their debut, and they still have their uh, white with uh, red pinstripe uniforms. And you can tell from a photo that uh, there's a patch sewn up over the the chest where it used to say cuanos in script. It now said Jersey City that that, that had to be stuck on all the uh, all the various uh, jerseys for the for their debut in New Jersey.
1: Well, uh, before we get to th- to that part of it cuz I do want to go a little deeper on that. I I I wanted to get a sense though of the Sugar Kings uh, because I, I got to think it was a-, a a tough sell uh for Maduro to get people to come see baseball in the uh, arguably the Cuban off season, right? Cuz that's the US, you know, uh in season, right? Because uh, the right. Cuban league obviously a uh, hot uh, humidity, uh, uh, you know, was that a, a hurdle or was it just simply uh, a continuation of a, of a year long now uh, uh, opportunity for people to enjoy high quality baseball? And that obviously a taste of, of the American game uh, at that.
0: Yes. Well, certainly, you know, the, the temperatures uh, would be, uh, could be some, something of a hurdle. That's why they actually played, would start their games, I think at nine o'clock at night. You're kidding. Um, no, <laughs> Um, and you know, you know, without TV timeouts and all that sort of thing, you know, you, you could knock a game out in a, an hour and a half, two hours back then. Uh, but yeah, they, they would start, uh, late at night. Um, and that was the, that was the standard. Uh, I think Sunday, you know, Sunday they would have the, uh, the doubleheader typically. Uh, and whenever, like I said, whatever, Oana and the were playing, that was always well attended uh, in terms of in terms of the Cuban League, but in terms of the Sugar King playing in the summer, um, yeah, that was that would probably be the the the, the biggest hurdle uh, was uh, the temperatures, uh, you know, in in July or August or whatever. But that's why they played games uh, late at night.
1: So, but it, 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 that it's, it would still seem though that between the Cuban League and in the uh, the winter months and. Uh, what was going on with the Sugar Kings in the uh, during the summer? It seems like you know the 50s, especially the late 50s, and especially as we get into the, in a second, sort of the the success of uh, of the Sugar Kings on the field with the championship. Uh, that things were kind of going along the lines of what Maduro was kind of thinking about, and maybe he's almost setting the stage for indeed that ultimate uh, next step jump into the major leagues. No.
0: Well, that's certainly what he was hoping for, but really, you know, everything was going to cha- everything changed with uh, the revolution. Uh, there were, you know, while the revolution was going on, while the fighting was uh, was going on in '57, in '58, uh, you know, there were concerns um, from organized baseball. Uh, some major league teams were were wondering if it, if if they should, um, you know, let their players play. Um, you know, and, and owner, owners and general managers would come and check out, check it out and, and make sure that uh, that it was safe. Uh, the players seemed from from everything, all the quotes I saw and people I talked to, the players all seemed to be um, felt generally felt safe. Some of the visiting teams for the sugar, you know, the, the you know Rochester and, and other teams when they came, sometimes they were concerned about what might be going on as far as the revolution. But you know, when Castro was, most of the fighting really was going on. Um, outside Havana. Now, once Castro took over, um, there was a lot of optimism with organized baseball and with Maduro. They figured, okay, you know, this is over. You know, he, he was welcomed, uh, to Havana as a, as a hero when he first, you know, right immediately after Batista fell. Um, but then things started to turn, um, you know, and there were suddenly, you know, the, you know, there were, um, uh, show trials and, uh, uh, executions of, um, uh, of uh you know, former Batista soldiers, uh, and, and the U S officials started worrying about, uh, Castro being a communist, um, and, and there started to be, um, you know, counter-revolutionary, uh, activity going on. Uh, and, and that's when, uh, people started to, you know, people, people in organized baseball, uh, started to be concerned about what might be going on or what, you know, would, would their players be safe? um so that's at that point uh kind of all bets were off uh you know probably you know mid probably about mid nineteen seventy nine uh that's when concerns really started to, to grow hot among organized baseball and one of the things was uh what happened at a at a game in uh in, at el Gran stadium between uh rochester and and um the sugar Kings uh, it was the anniversary of the 26th of July movement. That was Castro's revolutionary movement. And when the crux, uh it was a it was a game on the 25th. When the clock struck midnight, um, people started shooting off guns. Um, you know, sort of celebratory celebrating, and some and stray bullets uh, uh, struck uh, guys in the stadium. Uh, uh, Leo Cardenas uh, got grazed uh, on the shoulder. Uh, he was one of the Sugar Kings players, and uh, Frank Verdi, who was the third base coaching box, uh, uh, got hit, got grazed uh, in the head. Uh, they were, you know, like I said, fortunately grazed, uh, but you know at that point uh, the the red wings were refused to finish the game or the series the next day and, and left town and it's pretty amazing that the season was uh, allowed to continue um in, in cuba in 1959
1: yeah that that's interesting cuz so you're mentioning uh, the date is uh, july what 26th right which is the uh, yeah. the the, the uh, 1953 was the original uh, uh, beginning of the insurrection of of castro's uh, 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 forces and then they, the, you're, you're recounting this game in '59 on July 26th. Um,
0: right. At that point, uh, he, had, he the, the revolution has, had had triumphed, um, and and now that they were you know soldiers celebrating this this anniversary, you know you have this incident uh, uh, that I think in many cases would have just ended the season right then and there, but uh, they, they stuck it out.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause, and uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com/goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of. Us and Audible, Uh, and uh, it's something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julius Irving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is The uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julius Irving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremette. You could use your credit for that book, uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview uh, style uh, uh, background on the uh, uh, life and times of Dr. J. Uh, from uh, from all sides, uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Doctor J: The Autobiography. Of course, it's written by Doctor J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld, and it's narrated by Doctor J himself, Julius Irving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books—not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. Yes, Audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seat Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. It's also uh, telling, I think, uh, there's a little uh, sort of uh, mini game that sort of occurred before that game got played. Uh, but to me, is almost a uh, 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 emblematic of of what uh, ultimately was happening with uh, with the Sugar Kings and baseball in general in, in Cuba. Is that uh, Castro was was not shy about using uh, the sport of baseball, his uh, his beloved sport at that, uh, as a political prop uh, uh, on many different levels. So do you want to get into that little? sort of a, a game that was sort of a game before the game that uh, kind of maybe set the tone for per- perhaps the yeah, rest of Yeah, it was
0: it uh, was basically a, sort of a, a little exhibition game uh three innings uh you know the babulos, the bearded ones they were the uh one of the teams So castro, castro and and his uh inner circle were, were playing on on the the bearded ones uh team uh and the their play against uh like a military a, a team of military other uh, of uh, police i think it was uh cuban police guys so it was basically a fundraiser for uh the the government for a revolution uh you know and and the the stadium was packed for for that at this point he is still popular the you know uh you know things had not completely turned uh uh, in terms of uh you know taking over businesses or, or uh uh expropriating land, uh, you know, but uh, while the US had concerns at this point uh he is still viewed as uh, a hero. And yeah, not but uh, using uh, uh baseball as uh as a sort of a propaganda tool that continued well after professional baseball uh left uh, the island uh after sixty one and it became uh you know, more of a, I guess, a socialist model, socialist baseball model, uh, where the Cuban national team would go play in these amateur uh, tournaments around the world, often winning, uh, and that was, uh, you know, certainly a propaganda tool by Castro uh, post-revolution now uh, for decades.
1: In your research, how do, how do the, the, the teams and the other international league teams uh that uh, after that incident in July, uh, how do they uh, square uh, their travel going uh, into the rest of the season? I mean, you mentioned, you know, that that you know, kind of an incident would have uh, uh, on on some other, you know, uh, situations might have actually led to the end of everything. Uh, but yet they persevered uh, or continued to play. I'm just really curious about those months afterwards. Uh, and then leading into the playoffs which we'll get to in a second too um it, it had to be kind of hairy for you know some of these uh, teams and players and, and maybe even the the uh, the, the the players uh, on the ground in Cuba too to to kind of uh, you know I, there's a lot of uncertainty at least uh and 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 safety concerns uh, perhaps even beyond that
0: yeah i mean i think it was viewed basically as this, this isolated incident um you know and while it could have ended really badly uh it didn't um and 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 that they were able to to, to sort of continue uh like i said the the red wings wanted out of of the Havana right then and there uh they refused to make up the game the next day um and or play the scheduled game uh it caused, a you know there was a quite a bit of consternation uh from the from cubas side of it uh from even Maduro himself uh, was was quite upset about the the fact that uh, they uh, they left without playing and uh, he refused to reschedule uh the game uh in in rochester for later in the season but um i guess they just con- were able to convince them that this was a, an isolated uh, incident that then and, and really it was there there was that it you know there was not an issue like that ever again uh, in terms of uh players being in danger um, at the stadium or or in the hotels in in uh you know in Havana or, or you know around going around the city.
1: All right, well let's let's talk about sort of this uh, this championship because it certainly uh, interesting becomes a, almost like a, a a very convenient denouement of uh, of perhaps uh, uh the status quo for uh you know the fledgling uh, uh, professional uh baseball uh presence uh, in Havana, right? So you you mentioned earlier that they essentially became the champions of the International League, and then were pitted against the uh, the Millers of Minnesota, the American Association champs, uh, essentially in what was called the, I guess they call it the Junior World Series back then, right? Oh, it sounds interesting. Yeah. Sounds like this, something like th- that that thirteen year olds would play, but hence that was you know a branding issue as far as I'm concerned, but that's just modern day uh, uh, a viewpoint, right? Uh-huh. But um, but uh, it, it by by that time, right? It seems that you know, I, and i I'm, sh- I'm sure you get into this a little bit. You know, it, as the months have rolled on, even since that celebration, and still, when when Castro was kind of, you know, still looked upon as a, sort of as a as a heroic figure, uh, it it's pretty clear that by October, when this uh, championship series was underway, that uh, I, I don't know I, w- whether it's him appropriating this uh, this team almost as a as a vehicle for his. Uh, his belief set and or, you know, uh, Cuban nationalism or, or whatever, right? It just seems like this team successful and into this sort of World Series, uh, it almost is taking on some other dimensions uh, beyond just a team trying to win a championship.
0: Well, for him, certainly. He attended all, every game in, in Havana for that the Junior World Series, uh, making dramatic entrances, throwing out the first pitch um, you know, speaking to the crowd. Um, so yeah, th- this was a, uh, a, a huge, uh, publicity propaganda tool for him. Um, and again, still at this point popular in Cuba. So, um, you know, the, 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 the crowds are huge. Uh, they are, uh, they, they welcome him ch- with cheers. Uh, so, uh, it plays well in, in Havana still at that time. Um, but, uh, you know yes he he absolutely did uh, use baseball in that stage um of the of the Little World Series the Junior World Series excuse me to um to just sort of uh, continue uh to boost his popularity um with the uh, with the Cuban people at the time
1: so the championship occurs uh, it, it looks by all accounts it seems like Minneapolis games were, were were barely attended whereas it was just gangbusters in in Havana um but as the well, rest of the
0: conditions of- were just were just awful in Minnesota they had uh, uh, temperatures uh, you know freezing temperatures uh, snow and rain there's a photo um from the uh Sugar Kings dugout with three players one of them is cookie Rojas, and they have a bonfire in a in a garbage can trying to keep themselves warm during the games um and you know the they were they're only going to, uh, the the gates will only be shared you know, uh, for the first, I guess it's the first four games. So they wanted to give themselves a chance to actually make some money. So everybody was uh, in agreement when they said, let's move the rest of the series to Havana and ended up playing the next five, the, the the final five games there.
1: All right. So describe to me the, uh, the, uh, the Cuban league thereafter, right in the, uh, the, conti- the months thereafter for the, uh, the quote unquote winter season and, and, uh, the deteriorating state of affairs, so to speak, I guess, uh, in that uh, winter and then into 1960, because it seems like a lot of things sort of happened relatively quickly thereafter, including uh, the possibility and then eventuality of of the franchise leaving Havana uh, come next spring, uh, et cetera. Maybe you can kind of walk us through a little bit of, of some of the dynamics that were sort of occurring, you know, beyond maybe baseball, but obviously influencing and affecting it too.
0: Well, at this point, you know, we're talking about the 1959 1959- 60 season so that we still get uh, as far as the, the winner winner ball coming up after, after the sugar Kings win this title. Yep. Um, so that's uh so we're talking about that's one season and then 60, 61 is what ends up being the final season of the Cuban league. And, uh, 59, 60 and 60, 61, this is when Cienfuegos, uh, really ca- kind of comes into its own as, as a franchise in the Cuban league. Um, it's, it's led by, uh, Camilo Pascual and um and uh, Pedro Ramos um and uh Raul Sanchez as well, just uh, terrific pitching. Uh they they also lead the league in, in uh home runs. Um so this is finally the, the team that Maduro had owned um in the Cuban League really uh, comes into its own. Um and yeah, you start to get the, the, the tensions between Cuba and the US uh, uh increase. Uh, Cuba is starting to get uh, it, it start starts uh, diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union, um, and uh, it it begins in terms of it, they they reach an agreement where Soviet Union is going to provide uh, petroleum to Cuba. U uh, S. oil refineries uh, refuse to, to to refine the oil for them. At some point, Castro uh, takes over the oil the U S. oil refinery owned oil refineries. And just one thing leads to another, just sort of action-reaction uh, between the two countries uh, that starts to uh, really uh, raise questions about what's going to happen, not just in the country, but also in terms of professional baseball. Um, you know, at, at this point, once once the 1960 season starts for the Sugar Kings, um, there's... Uh, there are serious questions about uh, are the Sugar Kings going to be able to continue. The International League uh, comes up with a contingency plan in case they do have to move them. Um, you know, the, Bobby Maluto actually works with the Castro regime in trying to uh, support uh, the Sugar Kings, trying to keep them there at at this point. Uh, but you, you also start to have, uh, you know, some of the population in Cuba is, is has serious reservations about what's going on. Um, just as far as uh, the country is concerned, you know, it, uh, you know, uh, there are people within the the inner circle of Castro's regime that are either defecting or resigning, and and the reason they state is because of uh, communist influences uh, in the Castro re- re- uh, government, which at this point they're still denying. Uh, but so there are p- people leaving, starting to leave the country, uh, the, especially those um, who maybe own businesses. Uh, uh, and have the most potentially to lose if things, if it does become a communist country. So you, you, the Cuban league attendance, uh, sugar Kings attendance starts to, uh, uh, to be impacted. So all this, all these things are happening. And, and as I said before, the, in July, um, uh, the sugar Kings are on a long road trip. Uh, when, uh, uh Frank Shaughnessy the uh, commissioner of the International League pulls the trigger and, and, and forces the relocation of the team um the manage, the manager resigns um but but the players stay um they 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 continue the season in, in Jersey City um and then he- heading into the now 1960-61 season um as the te- tensions between the two countries continue to escalate uh, Ford Frick eventually uh, bars uh, American players from playing in Cuba, and that 60-61 Cuban League season is played with an all-native, all, with all-native rosters on all four team for the first teams for the first time in decades.
1: Very, very interesting. Okay, so a couple of questions. Number one, why Jersey City? From what you could tell
0: uh well probably cuz that was one of the places that had uh, had minor league baseball uh, had a facility um that wasn't in use uh, it had been a giants uh, new york giants uh, team for uh, uh for a stretch but at this point was uh uh was not being not in use uh so uh that was uh the the spot that they ended up the, they ended up in uh and they were welcomed. they thought it would be uh, a a a good location. Uh, remember also, at this point, what uh, uh, the Giants and Dodgers had left. Right. Um, so the, the it's only the Yankees there. Uh, so there's uh, an opportunity potentially, but but again, with the Yankees so close, um, the 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 Jersey City jerseys just never uh, never really take off. They're there for the 1961 season as well, and then eventually moved to uh, Jacksonville uh, as the Jacksonville Suns.
1: And ironically for you, uh, New York Mets fans, right, uh, ultimately became the Tidewater and now, I guess, Norfolk uh, Tides, which has always been the uh, the, the flagship uh, minor league uh, team in the farm system of the New York Mets.
0: Yeah, um, there's a, a lot of weird ties here and there uh, with, that, with all those international league teams, but yeah, that's right.
1: All right, so my other question then is, uh, what's going on in maduro's mind uh i I gotta think a lot of this was done without his uh blessing approval uh cetera, and and
0: yeah he was he was not happy yeah he was not happy when the the edict came down um you know he said you know if i'm gonna lose money i want to lose money here not 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 somewhere else uh so the team was relocated the the reds kind of took over operation the sort of day-to-day operations in, in jersey city he was still in in cuba uh, um at the time he would uh, not leave until later he left in the, the ni- in 1961 uh, right before the bay of pigs invasion um his family had already kind of moved um they were living with family and friends um in philadelphia so when he finally got out of cuba at, at this point he's basically lost everything he's lost his team he's lost uh, his businesses uh uh, i think uh he was trying to salvage the uh, one home that they had there uh but he eventually leaves um and then returns he uh to sort of the, the second half of uh, 1961 uh to sort of operate the uh, jersey city jerseys um uh although I, I the family is still living um in uh, in in philadelphia i think and he's commuting uh um you know, in 1961. But uh, so, and then he, when the team moves relocates to Jacksonville, he's he's running the team by then, and and does so for a couple of years before uh, finally selling uh, that team as well.
1: Interesting. And it left behind in Cuba is what a a a, a disillusioned fan base, uh, or it, obviously the dreams of anything, uh, minor league or major league professionally. Uh, with uh, the United States obviously seems to break away as uh, the tensions between the two countries uh, grow and uh, never to kind of really be uh, rekindled, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, at, at this point, I think by 1960, you know, tens of thousands of Cubans have left, uh, have left the island. Um, you know, and those that are worried about what might happen in terms of uh, uh, the country turning to communism, you know, they're just not baseball is not the the priority anymore so attendance is already uh suffering uh, about those last uh couple of seasons uh, because of everything going on um so yeah and, and you know it's it's after uh professional baseball ends completely um you know the the 1960, 61 winter league season ends um at that point it pretty much is is a fait accompli you know, uh, right? I think in the, a week or two afterwards, Cuba passes a law officially banning um, professionalism in sports, um, and then the, they um, start putting together uh, sort of an amateur uh, league uh, that eventually becomes uh, what we now know of, know as the Serie Nacional, which is you know, just a national series uh, across the the various provinces of Cuba, a team representing each province with those teams uh, feeding talent into the national team that you see that you would eventually see competing um, in world tournaments, World Cup, Olympics, et cetera.
1: And and the quality of that play though, uh, as good, not as good, uh, uh, the fan uh, base uh, as strong, not as strong. I mean, uh, obviously, a dramatic turn of events uh, across the country generally, but what, do you, what did it do for the sport of baseball? I mean, did it kind of just knock it off in its basically assumptive prime, uh, or is it just sort of, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it, it uh, dampened uh, the, the interest of people and the sport of baseball in the country, albeit in an unprofessional or non-professional manner.
0: Yeah, uh no, I I think uh, the the interest in baseball certainly continued, the talent level continued. Um you know, we didn't get to see that talent here uh play here, play against major league uh, uh caliber talent uh, for for decades. Uh but there's no question that uh you know, the the talent didn't just suddenly dry up. Yes, you had uh the guys who were already in uh in organized baseball in the minors in the majors who were able to uh, get out for the 1960 major league season and many of them just did not return to Cuba so you you did have a you know sort of an immediate talent drain um right after that you know in in 60 61 but you know the, uh, Cuba just kept producing uh quality players uh, I think that's there's no question about that what you but you did see them playing uh probably inferior talent or or maybe you know talent that had not yet developed um you know a lot of these these international competitions were uh, were am- playing i guess amateur competitions uh, when they played the US they would have been playing maybe college guys uh minor league guys guys who had not yet developed fully um and while the cuban players of you know the 60s 70s 80s were not quote unquote professional in in the sense of being paid uh, the proper salaries and such um, they were full-time players that was their job for for Cuba um, you know and so they were uh, they were experienced they were veteran they were talented uh, you know guys in their in their prime uh, sometimes playing against uh, guys who had yet to fully develop as players and that's why you saw the successes that they had you know in, in all those international competitions they were the team to beat
1: yeah, sure. I and I keep, you know, I also keep coming back to fifty nine, right? Which almost seems like the pinnacle. You got to think Maduro and and the country, and it just what an amazing sort of confluence of events and the championship, and and literally it just sort of that that is the peak, the peak of the apex. Uh, and you wonder just years later when, you know, it's a a, a, a not even you know well, let's call it semi professional or or uh, amateur sort of a setup. I mean, it just feels like it almost felt like so close, right? Yet uh, events uh, got in the way of of it uh, truly getting to that sort of next uh, and ultimate uh, professional level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the the fate was sealed when Castro uh, came to power. Uh, uh, Even, you know, even if there hadn't been, uh, you know, all of the tensions or if they'd somehow been able to dial back some of the tensions, um, it's just hard to imagine that with everything going on that they... That a professional team would have continued to stay there, um, you know, just uh, since everything else was nationalized, uh, baseball and sports were going to be nationalized too. And there's just no way a professional organization uh, tied to another country would have would have been allowed to operate there. I don't think.
1: Well, okay, so that leads me to a sort of my my last general thematic question, and I'm sure you can see this one coming like a big fat softball uh, coming right across the plate for you. But so, where where do you think, you know, given today's era and, uh, you know, uh, what seems to be a, a thawing of relations and and at least a, an opening of ties and and perhaps a lot more to come, uh, depending on, I guess, certain administrations, et cetera. We won't get into that, but. Uh, is uh, and you think you look at at Major League Baseball and, and its constant uh, interest in expanding uh, its influence beyond the the borders of the United States, whether it be with the uh, the you know the uh, the international competition, a la the you know Soccer's World Cup and uh, exhibition games in, in in Asia and Mexico, et cetera. You know, is Havana, is Cuba, a uh, 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 a potential uh, newfound found opportunity? Uh, for major league baseball on some level uh in the years ahead uh, in your mind given especially your understanding of the the rich history and the almost uh professional uh opportunities uh of your
0: yeah i, I you know I, I don't see that happening in terms of a major league team at, at any time soon uh just given the uh the government uh, structure there um i will tell you that there there is a, a a group that actually does own the minor league rights to a team in Havana should one ever return there. Um, it's something that they've been, you know, working, uh, you know, from Pat. You know, they started talking to the Bush administration through through the Obama administration and continue the discussions, um, you know, in terms of making contacts with people down there. Uh, again, if it should ever be possible. Um, they just they want to be ready if if that opportunity ever presents itself uh but with a, it, it's hard to imagine um a communist country letting a professional team um you know certainly a major league team uh, sort of operate there and how how would that work exactly um you know it's not like there's a whole lot of disposable income among the cuban people to go start to go to go to you know uh, made to buy major league tickets uh, to a ball game um so yeah, you know, might something happen in the future maybe, but I think that that's a, a long way away. Um th- that there's even this this agreement uh, that's just was recently announced I guess in December where Cubans now Cuban players don't ha- have to defect in order to potentially come play in the majors. I think that's a, that alone is is a, a tremendous uh, accomplishment. Uh, born out of uh, a lot of different things, uh, you know, the defections the last 10, 15 years have really hurt the uh, the, the Cuban the, the the national series. There, they've lost a a lot of talent. Uh, they are not sort of the uh, de facto favorite to win these international tournaments uh, necessarily. Uh, so that's had an impact. Obviously, Cuba wanted to do something to stem uh, the tide of those defections um so it was in their interest to to come up with this uh, agreement i guess it's a 3 year deal where uh, guys who uh, are, i think it's what 25 and have played 6 seasons uh, potentially are eligible to be signed with the with the majors and and um and those teams would then uh, be comp- the teams that lost those players would be compensated uh um, through a posting system uh, for major league baseball they they wanted this uh for a number of reasons uh, the de- the defections had had really become dangerous uh for those players uh you know hiring uh, smugglers to get them out of cuba uh there have been uh, trials uh in miami uh, uh over some of these cases with the smugglers and and them sort of continuing to keep their hooks in players and wanting a a cut of their future salaries uh and such uh, major league baseball didn't want to be associated with that even tangent tangentially um, but also you know they they, they wanted a, the, this agreement as a cost-cutting measure right uh, uh, when these guys defected if they could set up residence in a third country um, they were those players were free agents and they would uh, hold these tryouts uh, and you know let the bidding war begin for for guys like uh, uh, you know or, or Cespedes or uh, Jose Abreu. Um, so if if, they are, if there's this sort of uh, uh, a system in place uh, where uh, a Cuban player is bound to a specific team in the majors, then uh, those uh, bidding wars aren't going to happen. So um, now is uh, well. So far, I have not heard of a single guy uh, being signed yet. So. Um, we don't even know how this is going to, uh, proceed moving forward. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how it goes.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I, I you know, the cynic in me would say uh, a team in Havana might actually outdraw the Miami Marlins at this rate, but, um, <laughs> but that, you know, that's, uh, that said, actually, it leads to another, I guess another question is, is so the, the Cuban, uh, populace and the, the baseball fans in Cuba, I mean, to the extent that they, uh, have, uh, you know, as much information and, uh, uh and news and, uh, and data coming from the States and stuff. I mean, is there, is there a tie, let's say to the Miami Marlins? Is there any affinity to any particular team in major league baseball? Is there sort of a, a de facto, uh, you know, almost proxy kind of team or, or, or interest of, of those that, uh, you know, that live and, and play the game in Cuba for uh, major league baseball in the United States, or is it still kind of a, Uh, I don't know, a a, a loose, if if any, uh, relationship uh, of such.
0: Yeah, I don't know if there's any one team that uh, is a favorite now of of the Cuban people there. Uh, You know, I mean, the Yankees in the 50s were certainly popular, but that was because the Yankees were winning every year. Uh, I'm sure that was a a great deal to do with it. Uh, You know, I do know that they... That they get their information one way or another they know what's what's happening down uh what's happening up here um, I think they um, certainly uh, pay attention to the guys who have defected and how they're doing uh, but do they have a, a an affinity toward any particular team uh, in the majors um i i'm i i do not know
1: yeah, I, you know, as also uh, the the optimist to me, right, was also kind of sort of uh, uh, hinting or assuming at some point in in our lifetimes, right? A uh, uh, we'll call it a regime change or or uh, some kind of evolution between uh, the, the the relationship between the United States and Cuba, uh, what that government looks like going forward, a potential investment. I, there's no shortage of uh, of people in American uh, industry that uh, would love to. Uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it colonize Cuba, but certainly uh, add uh, uh, economic uh, uh, vibrance and uh, uh, trade, and 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 then some. And you wonder if and when that uh, that occurs. Uh, if professional, well, look,
0: look, remember professional. the the embargo yeah. is still in place. So you no, know, I know. Uh, oh yeah, oh, that's, yeah. I, that's the thing. Uh, you know, even even when the, when things were loosened uh, un, under the Obama administration, that sure. the. the, the 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 embargo it it was easier to go down there but in terms of businesses being able you know companies being able to do business down there the embargo was still in place yeah um so that and that's you know that's going to be an issue going forward until it's not uh and it doesn't appear that this administration is is interested in in lifting that anytime soon um i have not heard specifically how they have reacted um to to this uh, agreement with Major League Baseball um uh, the initial reporting uh, seemed to be the uh, the skepticism about it but um, there hasn't been a, a definitive ruling as far as I've as I've seen um so yeah i mean uh, would uh, american companies like to go down there i have no doubt uh but you you mentioned colonize that's going to be a concern with the, that's a, a, a concern the cuban government is going to have um of of having uh you know uh, us companies operating down there and 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 doing something like that
1: yeah e- even if you strip politics out of it right so and it's a completely fair assessment right you, you just boil it down to baseball right this is a a country that is rich in uh, history uh, in lore in talent uh and uh, and passion frankly for uh the quintessentially uh, ultimate american game right uh, it's the national yeah. pastime right and and, and you wonder, right, you know, uh, you know, despite uh, whatever political uh, uh, administrations and, and structures uh, are in place or might change uh, the idea of at least a minor league something or some other sort of bridge, shall we say, uh, again, uh, as was proven, uh, uh, at least uh, initially successful, could uh, be in itself uh, its own act of diplomacy and or. Other goodness that potentially could come. It would just be a shame in our lifetimes to not see some more strong uh, ties and official relation, I guess, uh, in the sport of baseball between the two countries, uh, and see where that might lead again.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I first found out about the the, the group that uh, owns the minor league uh, territorial rights, um, I, th- I thought that was really exciting, and and the fact that they have been working at it for. You know, through three administrations, uh, you know, the, and these are folks with you know minor league, you know, connections. Um, that you know, they've been involved in in the minor leagues before. You know, that that gave me hope. And and one of the things that also gave me hope was uh, ahead of the uh, the Rays going down there, when uh, the Major League Baseball did sort of a goodwill tour of, of Cuba. Um, And much to my surprise, when I first read it, um, it included uh, uh, a few of the defectors, guys who had left Cuba, who, you know, when when players defect Cuba, the the Cuban government uh, basically, uh, you know, considers them traitors uh, to have them uh, be part of that goodwill uh, tour um, to, you know, be allowed back back there. Um, was a sign to me that hey maybe there is some hope for something happening in the future, um, you know, and then this agreement happened. So you know we'll see. Uh, you know uh, it would uh, it would be uh, it would be good to see baseball return, professional baseball return there in some form or fashion.
1: Now I find it fascinating that uh, Havana might have actually uh, been the place for uh, a Major League Baseball franchise uh, had the uh, '60s played out a little differently, uh, shall we say? Uh, you know, and not only is it a turning point in baseball history, but also obviously world history. And we also, you know, certainly know what the uh, the Castro regime uh, sort of brought to uh, uh, that island nation of Cuba, but. Um, you know what? What could have been? Uh, it's, it's a fascinating tale, and uh, y- you wonder, uh, given the deep and long history of, of baseball uh, in Cuba, uh, which is you know well documented and, and continues to this day, uh, what might have been, and perhaps you know, depending on your uh, your level of optimism, uh, what might be again someday. I mean, you know, it it, it seems that uh, relations are thawing, although in this administration, it might be taking a pause even from that. Uh, But uh, make no mistake, the uh, the Cuban population, both uh, current and ongoing uh, successor generations, are very much uh, intrigued and interested and in love with the sport of baseball. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how far you can keep those uh, those two things uh, apart, uh, especially as professional baseball continues to grow, uh, not only in this country, but uh, around the world, uh, finally, beyond just the borders of uh, these United States. But uh, I digress. Uh, And I uh, encourage you to get this book. Uh, It is it's it's a really, really interesting description of sort of what was going on during the 50s. Uh, It's a story of Cuba. It's a story of baseball. It's a story of fandom. It's really it's it's fascinating. And and Cesar uh, Brioso is the author. It's called Last Seasons in Havana, the Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. Uh, It is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Buy many copies uh, early and often, will you? And uh Show your support for the show. You can find a link uh, to that book, of course, on our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode. I think it's, what, 107 the number is? Yep. And uh, you will uh, find a link conveniently uh, to Amazon to buy that book in all of its various forms. Uh, you'll show uh, a little love for our show by doing so and ordering it that way. And we appreciate you doing so. It's also the place, of course, our website to find out all what's going on with this this little funny little uh uh, endeavor we do each and every week you can find all of our all episodes there you'll find uh, links to all kinds of good stuff uh, as well as all of our social media links and you'll find us on twitter at good seats Still. still uh, you'll find us on instagram at good seats still available you'll find a, a facebook page devoted to us uh, you'll find a link to email you can send that to us directly if you want to as well that's hello at good seats still available.com and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff and we also of course as always want to thank our friends uh podfly productions and in particular of course the good dr jerry Payne, uh who puts all of our uh pieces together and he does so expertly as he has done uh this week of course and you want to find out more about podfly uh and their uh podcasting goodness and production and editorial offerings you can find out more about them at podfly.net all right i'm done for this week i appreciate your listening and uh i thank you uh, to no end and uh, we'll talk to you next week Uh, We love you for listening and uh, thanks so much for all your great uh, letters and support and emails and uh, keep them coming. And until next week, we'll see you. Bye bye.
0: equipo en las menores va a ganar de verdad Lo reafirma y lo asegura, béisbolito triple A Si este paso se reafirma y se imponen de verdad Nuestro team en las mayores de seguro ingresará